I'm Steph. And I'm Jeff. Each week, we review a film that's streaming online. As writers, we'll deep dive into the characters and plot to tell you if it's a good story. Listen at your own risk. This review contains spoilers. Now sit back. Relax. And and enjoy enjoy Stream On. Today, we'll be reviewing the 1956 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, streaming on Amazon Prime. In the small town of Santa Mira, California, something is wrong. People are acting odd, accusing their loved ones of changing into emotionless copies. Can Dr. Miles Bennell figure out the mystery? The Invasion of the Body Snatchers was directed by Don Siegel, and it's written by Daniel Mainwaring. It's based on Jack Finney's classic 1954 sci-fi novel, The Body Snatchers. There are multiple versions of this movie. There is the 1956 one we're reviewing today is the original, but this film has been adapted four times total. The other three adaptations are in 1978 with Donald Sutherland in it, in 1993 um, the movie's just called Body Snatchers with Gabriel Anwar. And then there's also a 2007 film, The Invasion, starring Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman, that is another adaptation of this. The film stars Kevin McCarthy as Dr. Miles Bennell, Dana Winter as Becky Driscoll, Dr. Miles's love interest. King Donovan as Jack Belichick, Carolyn Jones as Theodora Teddy Belichick, Jack's wife, and also a townsperson that they're suspicious of what's going on, and Larry Gates as Dan Kaufman, a skeptical know-it-all doctor. So, Jack, you chose this film. What made you pick the, the 1956 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers? So this is a classic science fiction slash horror movie. It does a really nice job of demonstrating growing paranoia in its main characters. It's very efficiently told. It's a fairly short movie. It's like under 90 minutes and it still tells a engaging story with fairly well-developed characters. It's, well-paced i don't find the movie drags at all so just as an exercise in filmmaking and storytelling it's one of the better science fiction films of the 50s i also think it's interesting for other reasons as i've mentioned it really gets into growing paranoia but it's an interesting look at american culture in the 50s and It's a useful lens for looking at attitudes of the time. There are a number of different reads on this movie and what it's about and what the story it's based on about, the novel it's based on is about, which we can get into later. But I always like movies that lend themselves to that kind of cultural leveraging where you can take this story and use it to look at the culture that produced it. Let's dive into the plot analysis. Uh, Since you chose this film as a writer, what are some of the things you would like to point out about the plot and characters? 
although I think this is a really good movie, I'm actually going to start with one of the things I have a problem with. And it's fitting to start with this in our analysis because it is the first thing we're exposed to, which is the prologue. This film has a bookend structure. So it begins with Miles in a psychiatric hospital, and he is going to tell his story to some doctors. And then we get like a wavy flashback effect. And then we get the bulk of the story. And then in, we get back to the present in which a truck carrying alien pods has overturned. And there's proof for this story that he's been telling these guys. And they clearly think he's nuts because they say as much. And now they know it's all real. And it's implied that everything's going to be okay. Interspersed. In the film are a number of voiceovers, which also lend to this idea that he's telling a story. My problem is that these don't work at all. The framing device is unnecessary and, in fact, was imposed on the director by Allied Artists. They thought that the original story, which begins with him arriving back in his hometown on a train and then ends with him on a crowded California highway surrounded by cars shouting at them that you're next and looking like a madman. They thought that was too bleak. Also, after some test audiences were shown the original cut, apparently people in the studio became concerned that the viewers were having a hard time following the story. So they added in some voiceover narration. Voiceover in and of itself can be used well. This is a great example of how not to do it because all these voiceovers either describe something that's happening on the screen or convey information that could easily have been conveyed in a line of dialogue. Of the former, there is a scene right near the end of the second act where Miles and Becky have already discovered that people are being replaced. Miles wants to go to the house of the nurse that works for him. He's going in the hope that she hasn't been converted. He literally says, we're going to go and try to get her. It's clear he's hoping that she's not a pod person. But then there's his voiceover saying, I hope she's not a pod person. I want to try to get her. It's, it's completely unnecessary. I hate when voiceover tells you what... You, the audience can figure out just by seeing the, the, what's going on. To me, that that's really insulting on the audience. And I get offended as somebody watching it that you think I need voiceover to understand what's happening. This is a fairly straightforward forward film. It's, it's telling the story of how townspeople are turning into pod people. It's not, it's not rocket science. It's not one of these complicated you know, memento style, style films that you're following, trying to piece things together. So yeah, I agree with you on the voiceover. The other one happens much earlier in the movie where Miles and Sally, the nurse, are driving back to town. And there's a little thing where some kid runs out in front of them and they have to stop. And there's this roadside fruit stand that clearly... It's in disrepair. Miles in voiceover says, hmm, 
that's odd. This family always had the best fruit stand in the state or something like that. If you want to call attention to it, that is a line of dialogue. That doesn't have to be some voiceover. Now, in this case, it's because that was done in post-production, but it shows, again, how unnecessary the voiceover, and I would say the entire framing device is. This works much better as just this nightmarish movie that ends with our hero on this highway, just some raving madman. Yeah, I mean, you, I would have preferred him going up to the fruit stand and seeing like some moldy fruit or whatever, and it's just clear it's been abandoned and disrepaired, and him through facial expressions of looking at the moldy fruit, like that says everything right there is like, what's going on. Like you didn't even need any dialogue. You could have acted that well with body language. Well, what's kind of instructive is that this is the only version of the story that has it being told in flashback. All the other ones, including the novel are told in a linear sense. And the story quite frankly, is not complex. As you said, this movie, I don't know how someone in a test audience could watch this film and not follow what's going on with maybe one exception, which I'll get into because I want to talk about world building and how you break world building. And there is something that happens at the end of this movie. But other than that, it's a fairly straightforward story. So Steph, was there anything about the plot that really jumped out that you wanted to call attention to? Well, I had two things. Um, I'll start with uh, Becky's character because I found it interesting. I, 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 the film used Becky to explore a, a Freudian concept that was fairly big at the time in the 1950s of the Madonna whore complex. And for those that don't know what it is, it, it's, a, it's a Freudian term where some men either put a woman into one of two buckets, either they're the virginal, dutiful housewife, the Madonna, or the sexually forward, seductive woman, the whore. And it's hard for a man to have both qualities in one woman. It's like they have, it's an either or. And so you see that in Becky, they're trying to put both into her. Um, you know, you introduce her as this divorcee wearing a very flirty, strapless dress. You know, she's showing her shoulders, which I'm assuming at the time in the 1950s is a little risque. Um, and she's basically Miles' like seductive dream girl. Um, and then we also see her spending the night in Miles' apartment, unmarried. She's still there the next morning, happily making him breakfast, like, do-do-do, like, that's a little bit, that's like whore, and then Madonna. And at one point, you know, he calls her a forward wench in a flirty manner, um, as she's, she's very openly flirting with him. But, and so there's that sort of like that empowered, you know, sexually free woman that they create out of Becky's character. But then they have these this, this flip side where she's making him breakfast or she is the damsel in distress. At one point, she's like, I'm staying, Miles. Don't ask me to leave you. I have to stay with you. And then the entire reason that she doesn't want to turn into a pod person is I want to love and be loved. I want to have your children, Miles. 
I don't want to live in a world without love. Like basically it boils Becky's character down to don't turn me into a pod person because I want you to love me and and bear your children, Miles, which is very much on the Madonna side. Um, We have Becky be the one freaking out with a dog running into the road, ruining their attempt to blend in and pretend to be pod people. Of course, it's Becky is the one that ruins it, is the woman that is worried about the dog, not Miles. And then when she's when they're running away from the town to try to escape, she's the one that stumbles and tells Miles she can't go on and is getting tired and he has to rescue her and carry her. Um, so it's like they didn't pick a lane. They tried to kind of give her both qualities. And I, I don't think it worked all that well, to be honest. In the end, Miles kisses her. She doesn't return his affection because she's a pod person. And then he basically, I guess his ultimate fear is revealed. I never knew the meaning of fear until I kissed Becky. And you can interpret that in different ways. Like maybe it's her female independence. Like she escaped that that cognitive dissonance and double existence of having to try to be both his Madonna and whore. So by becoming a pod person, she frees herself of that. Like maybe in some ways there is a little bit of victory for Becky because of that. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was interesting. It was interesting what they did with Becky's character. I'm not, I I didn't like it though, that they created that whole damsel in distress quality to her. This maybe an instance where the framing device actually saves the film a little bit. Generally, I think the idea of this being a flashback does not work. In this case, though, we have to remember everything we see is not just from Miles as the point of view character, it's from Miles as narrator. So this is how he is seeing Becky change in the course of a few days. She goes from, you know, that desirable independent woman to the same kind of cold, heartless person that I divorced. And this is one of the, like I said, it's either an issue with the film or a potential strength of the film based around that framing device and how it's being told. If you're looking at, the movie as an accurate representation of what happened to Miles, then there are some significant plot problems. If you look at it as Miles and his interpretation of what was happening, some of those you can forgive or say, well, this is how he saw things. The Becky character is one. We get a couple of actions on Miles' part that are very difficult to explain. The big one is where about halfway through the film, he has a premonition that Becky is in trouble, that there might be something wrong with her father, that he might be a pod person. And this is before they discovered that there are such thing as pod people. I mean, he doesn't say, I think this guy's a pod person, but he thinks that this is her father. There's something wrong with him. And then he just kind of goes and breaks into our house to rescue her. It's very weak when you have a character rely on a premonition or a bad feeling to do something that's a major plot point. It becomes a little more forgivable if you think, well, this is how he is telling these guys who 
you know, this may not be what happened. You have the whole unreliable narrator issue. What do you think about that? Does does this work as an unreliable narrator story and therefore you can kind of overlook or if not overlook, you can look at things like Becky's character development as not really about her, but about him and his problems. Yeah. So if you look at it from that lens, it is a really interesting exploration of Miles struggling with his own Madonna whore complex um, towards Becky and him seeing her either very sexual, flirty, uh, dream girl or damsel in distress, dutiful, breakfast making housewife who wants to bear his children, right? And going between the two. And so that it culminates in his ultimate fear, which is when he kisses Becky and she's a pod person. If you're going to take that interpretation, it symbolizes female independence, that she is able to escape needing him and becoming this pod person. It's almost like a good thing for Becky to be a pod person. Um, But it's Miles's ultimate fear that she doesn't need him. It's an interesting way to interpret it. But if you interpret it at that lens, it's more, that's why Miles is afraid because she has freed herself. Uh, I think that actually works better than a more surface read of the film that we're given. It also helps take care of a significant world building problem. And it has to do with the scene where Miles kisses Becky. So in the lead up, Miles and Becky are fleeing from the town. It's full of pod people. They hide in a mine. He hears some music. He goes to see what it is, finds out it's just pod, more pod people. He goes back to the mine, and she has fallen asleep. So he kisses her, wakes her up, and she just kind of first is like kind of mumbling and then clearly becomes a pod person. The problem is, is that throughout the entire movie, it is clear that the pod people are duplicates. They come from these giant seed pods and then absorb your mind and something happens to your body. It's not clear what. There's a proximity issue that these pods have to be really sort of close to the person they're duplicating, but they don't take over your mind the film as we get it though that ending kind of blows out of the water and it's like becky becomes a pod person as opposed to becky is replaced by this alien it works as a horror scene and it works as a commentary on miles i do think it ties into the little bit that we get about the problems that he had with his wife that led to the divorce you get this idea that you know, there was a emotional distance there and probably a certain amount of uh, lack of intimate contact. If you look at this as purely some sort of device he is using to talk to these doctors in the flashback, it's less problematic than if you look at it as it's presented, because then it breaks the rules. Right, because it what she didn't develop as a duplicate from the pod, she just somehow switched over. In the 1978 version, they establish how the pod people come about. It is this proximity of the pods. At one point, Donald Sutherland, who is essentially the 
Miles character of that movie. He's like asleep in the back of his yard and one of the pods is nearby and like these little tendrils come out and attach to him and it's very creepy. There is a scene with Brooke Adams who is in the 78 version is the Becky character and she has fallen asleep as he's embracing her and she quickly turns to dust. And it's a very disturbing and awesome scene. And then her duplicate pops up from where a pod was nearby. In that case, they establish how this all works, how the pods duplicate and stick with it through the film. I am not sure what the point of was in changing how the pods duplicate in this movie. I think Don Siegel just wanted this idea that Miles can just know that this woman no longer desires him. And it's not because of anything he's done. It's not that he's, say, a bad kisser. It's that she's turned into an inhuman pod. Right. And it's so it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing for women to not desire a man. And if they don't desire a man, then it's because they, right, have been taken over by the pod. Not not because they might just not like him. But we do have to look at the film in the context of the time. And there is, you know, a lot of sexism still in the 1950s and very traditional gender roles um, that were put upon women in the 1950s. The author of Body Snatchers, if you read some of their stuff, and I've read some short stories, a lot of them have to do with nostalgia and kind of this idea that we're moving into an age when people are more anonymous and less connected and the small town community ties are fraying and some of that ports over pretty well into this movie i really like how miles when he is walking through town he knows everybody and he like interacts with everybody there's like at one point this you know little boy's walking by he knows who he is and kind of tossles his hair he's one of the town doctors so it's not surprising you know everyone but it does give you the sense of an intimate community where everybody has some sort of connection to everyone else. And that even though ostensibly the pod people have a tighter community because they seem to act almost like a hive mind, because they're emotionless, there's no real intimacy. They don't greet each other. They don't say anything they don't need to. There's a really good scene. I believe it's in the first act when we're still getting introduced to the idea that there's something odd going on where miles and becky go on a date to a nightclub and it's empty and the owner mentions that no one's come in in the last few weeks and it's like well right because why would pod people go out to eat or interact or be in a crowd or go dancing you know it's they might have a perfect sense of what the community is going to do to survive, but there's nothing else there. Yeah, that was a nice eerie scene that gets you into that something's not right in the town, right? I mean, you already kind of know that given like the, the thing with the fruit stand and that, you know, my mom is not my mom, basically, and my cousin is not my cousin. And, you know, we have a couple of that. So we already know something's going on, but that was a, a nice way of showing that with the empty nightclub. Well, another thing that really helped with this film is the visual style. It's mostly shot in a fairly flat, almost documentary style, and that was by design. They wanted to pick a real town 
and shoot in real buildings and make certain that everything, you know, like store windows had goods in them. So everything looked real, like this could be any place America, as opposed to another film with kind of a similar theme of people being replaced by emotionless aliens, uh, Invaders from Mars, where everything is shot on very minimalist sets and every camera angle is a little off. So there's this heightened sense that this is unreal and there's something horrible happening. In this movie, you're presented with a very realistic looking every town America. I think that helps get you into the paranoia and the sense that what is really happening in the house next door kind of feel that this movie actually does really well. Well, and this gets into, you know, one of the common interpretations of this film is that it was it was released in the mid 1950s at the height of communist paranoia where that did exist. Like, is my neighbor a communist, right? At, at the height of McCarthyism. I feel like we have to talk about that with this film. That is one of the common interpretations. Um, and based on how you, like the lens you take when looking at this film, you can really see it as either anti or pro-communism. I would say more commonly it's seen as, um, you know, anti-communism um, because it's it's very much like if you become a communist, you're going to be like a, you're going to be like the pod people. Like communism threatens that sense of individuality um, where people have different emotions and different needs and, and communists are all about being the same, right? The same dumb, dull, dumb pod people um, where everybody gets the same things. And, um, you know, McCarthy talks about how communism like that was his big thing is that it's going to come to your institutions, your police, your doctors, your, and then pretty, once it's in the institutions, it'll infect your small town. And children were actually taught in the 1950s that communists had no feelings, which isn't true. Of course, all humans have feelings, right? But, but that's what they were taught. Um, and, and, and in the end, the savior, based on how the film, this film ended, is that the government comes in and saves the day, right? Uh, against communism, like the FBI comes in and saves the day. Um, so what are your thoughts about that interpretation, the pro-McCarthyism um, interpretation of the film? What's interesting about that interpretation, and I completely understand where it comes from, looking at the film, the context of the time, and as the story progresses, it certainly looks like this idea of, you know, of the red under the bed that you have to watch out for. It's fascinating though, that the entire production team has denied that had anything to do with the movie. There's a quote from Don Siegel. Um, he says, I felt that this was a very important story. I think that the world was populated by pods. and I wanted to show them. I think so many people have no feeling about cultural things, no feeling of pain of sorrow. The political reference to Senator McCarthy and totalitarianism was inescapable, but I tried not to emphasize it because I feel motion pictures are primarily entertained and I did not want to preach. You can't fully divorce a product of the culture from what's going on at the time, but I do think it's interesting that none of these guys really saw that as the actual point of the story. It was not meant as a comment on communism or the Red Scare or McCarthyism or any of that. 
it was more of a general idea of dehumanization in modern society and that lack of connection. Interesting. I don't think that invalidates anyone who's analyzing this as a commentary on communism. And this kind of gets into what I find an interesting topic is once you create something, you have, of course, the reason you created it, the message you want. But once you've made it and dumped it into the culture, you lose some control over what that meaning is. It's no longer just yours. If you have readers, they're bringing their own interpretation to what is your writing. In this case, if you're looking at this movie, even knowing that Siegel, uh, the producers, the writer, that none of them really had that in mind, I don't think that that invalidates that as a mode of analysis, because this is a product also at a time. You can't really escape from viewers also being aware of all the things around them and bringing their own viewpoint to what it is you're making. Yeah. And even the film, the, the, he, the crew themselves, right, were caught up in just the zeitgeist of the time with the McCarthyism, anti-McCarthyism. So they may have brought it in, right? Like unknowingly, maybe they weren't purposely doing it, but just because of the zeitgeist, it, it may have bled into how they uh, filmed it. And and I think it's, you know, there was a less common interpretation, but it also existed where the liberals, the anti-McCarthyism folks saw it more as a critique of the Red Scare. Um, and that the institutions, it was showing the institutions had already been corrupted. The pod people had been there for a while and that Santa Mira, the fictitious, fictitious town this was based on, the people were just waking up to it, but it had already been corrupted and we needed a wake up call and a revolution. And, you know, the original ending was the traffic scene where Miles is shouting, you're next in the middle of passing cars and basically save yourself from the corrupt government institutions that are already in existence. So it's it's interesting. The lens that you start the film off with is, is how you're going to interpret it. Yeah, this film does lend itself to multiple interpretations because of the time it was filmed in. Which is one of the reasons I like it. Even though it has problems with characters and plotting and world building and all that, it still is a fairly sophisticated story. And it really lends itself to using it to look at what was going on in America at that time. And it still has some value today, not necessarily as a commentary on the Red Scare, but more along the lines of how we look at each other and interact with each other in a world where you can go your entire life with a neighbor in the apartment next door and never know them, never even interact with them. You know, Siegel's comment about the world being, being full of pods. And it's hard to argue with that. We do operate in some way like pod people, kind of holding ourselves in and only allowing certain people in to see who we really are. One thing I did want to bring up, and, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, about some of the plot holes. We're asked to do a lot of suspension of disbelief. I think the only way it works is if you look at this not as most people would as a science fiction film, but more of a straight up horror movie. So what, what do you think about that? Um, so you do have to suspend a lot of disbelief 
to deal with this plot and how the people respond. They don't quite respond. Even in the world they build, they don't quite respond like normal humans, which kind of goes to the point of, you know, has the pod already taken over basically. But then that doesn't work because the whole thing is they aren't yet pod people. So yeah, it's, it didn't really work for me. And I didn't see this as a horror movie. I saw there wasn't enough elements of horror. It was, it's more sci-fi than horror. There's not enough creepy or jump scare moments for me for it to be horror. I think if you look at through that horror lens and especially as the movie goes on and as some more of these plot holes start to crop up, it's easier to accept them because we accept different things when it comes to suspending disbelief based on genre. In science fiction, I think viewers, readers, they tend to want to see people behave in a more you know, rational or believable fashion. I mean, like any general statement, there are always going to be lots of exceptions. With horror films, though, I think that we are much more forgiving of people doing dumb things like going into the dark basement alone. I have one last kind of plot thing to get into, and then we can, if you have nothing else, we can wrap this up. What did you think about the visual style, how the film was shot, some of the, I thought, very impressive scenes. There's this near the end where Miles and Becky are fleeing from this, you know, the town full of pod people. And you get this couple of nice long shots um, as they're running up the staircase. And there are these pod people after them. The film looks really good. There are a lot of really memorable scenes in it. And the director knew just when to pull out a camera trick like at the end where Miles is in the highway and everything is done with these Dutch angles. So you get the idea that, you know, his worldview has been so twisted by what he's just experienced. Did you find that the visual style, the visual language helped with this movie? I didn't have any issue with how it was shot. I did like when the camera zoomed out and you're like watching the townspeople from above going about their pod business uh i liked the scene one of my favorite scenes was that traffic scene where miles is going crazy and it's very chaotic as the cars are zipping by and the camera uh is is chaotic accordingly so yeah i thought the film did a good job with how it was shot and the angles that camera took to zoom in and out um effectively I wouldn't say it's any, it's, it's, I wouldn't call it a cinematic masterpiece to write home about, but it did its job effectively. So if you don't have anything else to say about the plot, I think we're ready to move into our wrap up. Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about our best and worst scene and give this thing a rating. What is your favorite scene? So there's one scene where Dan, who's the skeptical doctor that plays off of Miles's character is pontificating on the mind. And he's really good at rationalizing away everything that's happening in the town with the pod people. And he talks about how there's, there's this phenomenon of mass hysteria and it can become an epidemic. And that's what he, Dan thinks is happening in this town is that it's mass hysteria is taking over. And 
he does this nice quote and it's from the book. The human mind is a strange and wonderful thing, but I'm not sure it will ever figure itself out. Everything else, maybe from the atom to the universe, everything except itself. And I just thought that was a nice line and it it allows you to explore this film with more depth. It does kind of hint at more of a Freudian interpretation. Freud had this idea of the double, right? He wrote about it in a 1919 essay called The Uncanny. And it's this idea of using an imaginary version of yourself to look at yourself more objectively and critique yourself, like your long-held assumptions and beliefs. Um, This helps the ego not get in the way of your own self-analysis. And so because this film deals with doubles, I thought that was, it was interesting that that quote was in there um, as like thinking about how we understand the mind, because in some ways it takes an outside observer to help you understand your own mind, like a double of yourself to pull back from being inside yourself. So I just thought that was an interesting scene and you could go deeper with that if you wanted to take a more Freudian lens of how you looked at the film. What is your favorite scene, Jeff? My favorite scene is a greenhouse sequence. I enjoyed the way it was shot. It is extremely creepy. The effects, while simple, are effective. I really like the acting in that scene as these characters that we've seen kind of holding it together and being fairly nonchalant at the stuff happening around, including finding a body. All of that facade just falls away when they finally see the real terror, the real horror, the real alienness of what it is they're facing. So as a you know turning point in the story, I think it works really well. And I really like that it's that the the backdrop is that Miles, Becky, Jack, and his wife are basically in Miles' backyard about to have a barbecue, like one of the most all-American things you can do. And right next to them are these pod people, you know, popping out and getting ready to replace them. So what was your least favorite scene? I talked about it earlier, but I will reiterate is it's when Becky is fawning over Miles. Miles is really nothing special in this film, but it's this over the top. I don't want to be a pod person. I want to love and have your children. Um, It just, I hated how they boil Becky's character down to that is her single reason for not wanting to be a pod person. And the scene is just this, it's just so sad and desperate sounding from Becky that I it just left me cringy. So that is one that ugh, I didn't like. What about you, Jeff? I agree. That was a pretty bad scene. I think the only way it really works is if you only look at it through, you know, Miles as the unreliable narrator lens, and that's that's just how he is interpreting what she actually did. But my least favorite scene is when Miles goes to Becky's father's house to rescue her because it is all based on a premonition. He had a bad feeling and he goes in, breaks in, does all, a bunch of stuff that doesn't really make any sense. Normally, I might be a little more forgiving of something like that if it was a minor plot point, but this is a pivotal scene in the film. 
and for it to rely on basically a writer going, hmm, I have no idea how I can logically get my character to do this, so bad feeling is pretty cheap. You have a bunch of characters who are fairly rational, and one of them in the middle of the night decides, I have to go rescue this woman who I've had, what, one or two dates with because her father seemed odd, even though nothing in the interaction earlier between Miles and the father seemed odd. It also doesn't fit with Miles's character as they set him up to be a very scientifically based doctor. Um, so he wouldn't typically be the person that just relies on a premonition to motivate him behaviorally. So Steph, on a scale of zero to five, would you give to this movie? So I went right down the middle with two and a half. I mean, there's some cheap special effects, but whatever, it's the 1950s. It is interesting to watch if you want to critique it from a Freudian lens or a political lens within the 1950s zeitgeist. It's watchable, it's interesting, but nothing that really gave it more than an average rating for me. But I would recommend, for sci-fi fans, it is a classic, so I would recommend watching it because because of the fact that it is a classic sci-fi film. And if you want to get into some nerdy interpretations, that might make it more interesting for you. But I, I don't see this as like an amazing masterpiece. What about you, Jeff? I went a little higher. I gave it three and a half pod pandas. I appreciate the overall tone of it. I like the way it looks. I, I like that kind of documentary feel that you could get in a lot of 50s sci-fi as far as like one of the central themes this idea of people being replaced and reduced to emotionless puppets it's one of the better films in that little subgenre from that time i had mentioned invaders from mars came from outer space and i married a monster from outer space all these films are looking at a common fear of that time, which is the loss of individuality, whether due to communist infiltration or the rise of like the, the organization man, the idea that we have to conform to the way society is going. And I think these are interesting films, and this is one of the better ones, because it lets us look at what people at that time were actually concerned about what they are fearful of where it loses points are for some of the plot holes we've gone over and um, the bookend scenes only work if you really wanted to dive into this movie as miles as unreliable narrator and that this is more of a look at his psyche and how he is looking at the world as opposed to what i really think it was was a fairly poorly thought out framing device imposed on the director by studio executives who wanted more things explained in a story that didn't need things to be explained and wanted a happy ending when this movie really needed an ambiguous ending at best. And I think a negative ending. Ending it at the original point of, the car scene with Miles shouting in the traffic would have been perfect. Before I wrap up, I, I do have to ask, have you seen 
1978 version of this film? I have I have not seen any other version, so I don't have anything to compare it to. Although I would recommend this movie. If for some reason you decided, I only want to see one adaptation of the original novel, I would actually recommend the 78 version. It's overall better acted. It is more interesting to look at. And because it doesn't have that potential Cold War Red Scare baggage, it's a much more boiled down look at the loss of individuality and the kind of walling in that people do in modern society, particularly modern urban America. Okay, well... There you have it. Um, We both recommend it, but Jeff likes it a little bit more than me. So Jeff, what do we have coming up next week? We're going to head over to Netflix and check out I Am Mother. So join us for that. Stream On is a production of Steph and Jeff Writes Media. Reproduction without written consent is prohibited. All rates reserved, 2021.